0: And uh, <clears throat> if you were in the men's study, if you were in the women's study, we've had a couple of months off, and the time went by quick. And it, uh, it's time to gear up again. Uh, now, what we ought to do? Uh, let's ask this question: How many of you normally come to the first service? Let's see your hands. Okay, and then second service. Okay, and third service. <laughs> see, I see, I see your hand. You know, this is a great opportunity, and we always do this at the men's study on Wednesday night. Uh, it's a big church. We go to different services. Uh, what, what I'd like you to do, and this is nothing to sneeze at, by the way, the thing, the thing that would be a good thing here, let's take advantage of the opportunity. Let's meet somebody we don't know. Now, if you're sitting next to someone you've known for 20 years, ignore them. Find someone you don't know. Let's get acquainted for a few minutes. Let's do that, all right? All right. That's great. Hope you had a chance to meet someone new, and maybe you got a dinner invitation out of that, who knows. (laughs) Let's uh, begin by going to the Lord and asking him to uh, make this time significant for us. Father, we thank you that you are there, and we thank you that you always have been there. We thank you that... You are a God who is, uh, who is majestic and wonderful, and as we are going to see tonight, you have some truth for us that is designed to remove pressure from our lives. Uh, your yoke is easy and your burden is light, and we forget that sometimes because we do indeed get overloaded. So we ask that uh, after a full day and uh, a time when on most nights we're starting to relax and we're starting to wind down, that you will help us with uh, our attention and with our energy level and that uh, uh, you will teach us and that you will instruct us and that you will make this time worthwhile. We don't want to waste this time. Uh, we, We don't want this, quite frankly, just to be another study but we would ask that you would do a deep work in our hearts and speak to us from your word. That's our prayer. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last uh, couple of months, I have had people ask me if I am working on anything new, and I say, yes, I am. Uh, Got an idea I'm working on, and uh, they say, what are you working on? I said, well, that's going to be a book. I said, well, what's it called? And my immediate reaction is, I said, well, the working title is Overcoming Overload. And almost every time I get the same response, I I get a deep sigh. Huh. (laughs) Overcoming Overload. And, And what's interesting about that is I've talked to different people about this, is that I can't think of anyone that I know personally, who doesn't feel overloaded. It is the curse of our culture. I heard about a guy not too long ago that was experiencing this uh, uh, in a very acute way. He uh, got to the office on Monday and he had been working on a deal for months trying to put this thing together. Uh, A lot was riding on it financially, he'd put pieces together, he'd put hundreds of hours together on this. And he got a call right after lunch, Monday afternoon, and it had fallen apart. And he was devastated. He really needed that to come through because he was feeling enormous pressure, and he had been counting on that. And he thought to himself, well, this day's shot. And, uh, but, but the good news is this week can't get any worse. Tuesday he went into the office, and guess what? It got worse. And his boss was upset about some things, and there were some strategy meetings, and he offered a plan, and it wasn't accepted. And Wednesday got even worser. To use the Greek, uh, it, it just wasn't going well. And he just kept going deeper and deeper and feeling more and more pressure. Uh, by Wednesday afternoon, he thought to himself, you know, I just want to make it till Friday. I just want to survive to the end of the week. I want to get home, have dinner, watch TV, just zoo out. Well, he made it to Friday. He's fighting traffic on the way home. He's in gridlock. Finally, he walks in the door. There's his wife standing there all dressed up, obviously ready to go. And he doesn't have a clue. And she can tell he doesn't have a clue. She says, sweetheart, we're supposed to have dinner with the Wilsons. He says, I don't want to have dinner with the Wilsons. I'm exhausted. Let's cancel. She said, we had to cancel twice. We have to go. He says, all right, listen, why don't you grab the car, bring it around front. I'm just going to go upstairs, grab a quick shower. I'll be right down. He goes up, gets the shower, comes downstairs, goes outside. And she's standing by the car with a strange look on her face, and the car is running. And she said, Sweetheart, I'm sorry I locked the keys in the car. Well, this guy just lost it, totally lost it. He said, I can't believe God could make someone so beautiful yet so cotton-pick and stupid. Kind of a harsh thing to say. But she understood this guy, and she said, well, sweetheart, I'm sure it's for our benefit. And he kind of looked at her. He said, I'm sure God made me beautiful so you could love me, and he made me stupid so I could love you. Now, when we are overloaded, and by the way, I couldn't believe it when Mary said that to me. I was, I was crushed. When we get overloaded, we say things we don't mean. Uh, what that guy was experiencing was something called displaced anger. Was he really angry at his wife? Was that where all the anger, is that where the boiling point was with his wife? No, it was all the other stuff that had happened during the week. But he couldn't unload at the office, and he couldn't unload on his boss or this person, so it's displaced anger. Not really intended for her, it was just meant for those other people. A few weeks ago, I I sat down with my laptop, and I, uh, I, I wrote some words about being overloaded. We are saturated people. We are overwhelmed with the demands and stresses of life. We are pulled 10 different ways at once. We have responsibilities and stresses in our careers, families, churches, relationships, and financial plans that are more than we can handle. We have more affluence and prosperity than previous generations could ever imagine, yet we experience less joy, contentment, rest, and peace than any generation before us. Why? Well, we're overloaded. We are overworked. We are overcommitted. We are overanxious, overmatched, and often we're overextended. There is no more room in our lives. Any of this sound familiar? There's no more room in our lives, yet Every new day brings more commitments and responsibilities that demand to be squeezed into our lives. Just the task of getting to work has become a monumental daily task for millions. A one-hour commute each way is common. Uh, This is why we are so overwhelmed. We are on a runaway train. In actuality, we are not on the train. We are running in front of the train expending all of our energy in an effort to keep it from running over us, our families, and our very existence. Our lives tend to be lived in deficit. Uh, Emotional deficit, relational deficit, and spiritual deficit. When our personal checking accounts get overdrawn, we experience immediate stress and pressure. When we discover that we are overdrawn, it sets off an adrenal rush to find a way to immediately cover where we have come up short. But where do you find a surplus when you are already in deficit? That's why we are overwhelmed and overloaded. We are scrambling in almost every area of our lives to make up the shortage. And it's killing us. The majority of people in our culture are leading... Overdrawn lives. We are overdrawn at work. We are overdrawn in our marriages. We are overdrawn with our kids. Since the stock market dropped, we're just overdrawn. Period. Um, how in the world did, did I get into this topic and how did I get into this subject? Well, I'll tell you why. About a year ago, right about at this time, in fact, it was probably September. Summers, uh, I get a little bit of time off, and then my conference season starts, and I'm running around doing weekend stuff. And about three weeks into my fall schedule, and I'd had a rest, I'd had a break, about three weeks into it, I realized I was absolutely exhausted. I was absolutely worn out. And I thought to myself, you know, this is not a good thing. I was difficult to live with. I know you find that hard to believe. (laughs) But I was tense. Uh, almost all the time. I was irritable almost all the time. Not at church, of course. I'd never do that at church because I know how to look spiritual at church. But you see, my problem is God wants me to be spiritual at home. I've never had a problem being spiritual at church. I've always had trouble being spiritual on the way to church. (laughs) Does anybody identify with that? I, I know you don't, but... That's where real life is is lived out. And and as I realized, I was in a deficit situation, and that I was over, and then I looked at my schedule, and there wasn't a lot of hope, because I had overcommitted on my schedule. That's what made me start, uh, it made me start to take a look at my own life. And then as I would talk to others, I began to realize a lot of people feel this way. and, and it's not a good way to live. It puts a strain on every area uh, of our lives. Uh, as we do a little bit of analysis of why we are overdrawn emotionally and why we are overwhelmed and uh, why we are so spent, I, I think part of it is just the culture in which we live. Uh, it, it is a culture that is anti-God, it is a culture that is anti-truth. It is a culture that is anti-Bible. You picked this up at all. Uh, didn't used to be that way. It, it used to be that, uh, that there was an underlying uh, foundation of Christian truth that permeated the culture. But as we have continued down a wrong path, we have lost... Uh, we have lost certain principles and certain truths that used to be part of the fabric of our culture, but we have left those things and we're paying a price. Uh, our culture is a culture that, uh, and when I say culture, I'm talking about the, the worldview, the mindset. Uh, it is pervasive. It's everywhere. There are messages that we are uh, subject to 24 hours a day. And, uh, and there are lies that we hear on a constant basis which I think contribute to some of the overload that we experience. Let me give you three lies that I think our culture says to us about life and how we're supposed to live life. Here's the first lie. Lie number one, you can have it all. No, you can't. You, you really can't. Now, at times... Uh, some of us ha- have bought into that to, to a degree, and so we have ordered our lives around that teaching that, yes, I can have it all. And, and, but, but to have it all demands a tremendous amount of energy. You can save yourself a lot of time if, if you're attempting to have it all by just reading the book of Ecclesiastes. Because there was a guy who wrote Ecclesiastes by the name of Solomon who literally had it all. The guy spent his life accumulating everything he could possibly accumulate. Um, he had stables. He had horses. He had summer homes. He had uh, four-wheelers. He had RVs. He had, or, or the Old Testament equivalent thereof. He, he had gardens. He had... Uh, lakes he had uh, palaces he he had wives quite a few wives he he had this guy had everything and uh, he wrote an entire book about the foolishness uh, of trying to have it all and really when it, when it was all said and done he boiled it down and he said hey if you got a a wife to live wife with and you have a job that you can work with and basically, if you have a God that you know and you can serve, you've got a good life. That's pretty much it. See, what he was into was something, at the end of his life, have you tried all this? Basically, this guy was into simplification because he realized he couldn't have it all. There's a second lie. second lie is this, you can do it all. Now, when you hit, when you hit 40, you don't buy into this. When when you're 50, you can't remember that you ever did buy into it. And when you're 60, well, you guys are over the hill anyway. Just a little 60s joke. Those of you, uh, we're glad you're here. You don't know you're here, but we're glad you're here. I can say that because I'm 52. Uh, But but is that not true, that we live in a culture where you'll see this and you get this idea, you can do it all? No, you can't. Here's a third lie. You deserve it all. How many commercials do we hear, uh, they're pushing something, to get the blank, you deserve. You don't deserve anything. I don't deserve anything. 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, if we have... Basically, food and clothing. We're to be content. If, if I just had food and clothing, I'd be ticked off. And so would you. I would be upset with God. Why aren't you blessing me? Why? Because we live in a culture that is sending us these wrong signals. Now, I'm taking a little bit of time to try and um, uh, diagnose what it is that we're living in, what it is that uh, this, this worldview and this world system is constantly saying to us, uh, and it's saying a lot to us. Um, I, I think it's true that many of us feel overdrawn and overextended and overwhelmed. And we shouldn't be surprised, because as you look at our lives... Uh, notice three things. Number one, notice the pace of life—the pace. Uh, we live it fast. Um, I, I, I did a, I did a book a number of years ago, and I did a chapter in there called NASCAR Fathering. You ever watch the NASCAR races? When they pull into the pits, it's unbelievable. They pull. They, they they pull into a pit, and you got about eight guys that show up. I mean, they're changing tires, they're putting in windshields, they're they're pulling engines, they're doing, and, and in about forty three seconds. <sighs> See, for a lot of us men, we're so overloaded. That's the best we can do as fathers. We go whipping into the pit at home. Aaron, how you doing? Good to see you. How are you? Good. (laughs) Everything okay? And we're back out. See? Why why is that? And, And you don't want to live that way. I don't want to live that way. Why is that? It's because of the demands that we're trying to meet. It's because of the demands that have been placed on us. The pace of life is Unbelievable. Another reason we're overdrawn and overextended is because of the progress of life. Uh, you say, well, wait a minute, progress is a good thing. Yeah, it, it can be. Uh, Richard Swenson uh, has made some comments on, on progress. And uh, he puts a hypothetical situation out and uh, basically says if two reporters were uh, doing a survey, on all the changes in the modern world. And if they were to ask the following question, if you could use only one word to describe all that is happening in the world, which word would you choose? Swenson says, if such a question were put to me, many possible choices would present themselves, but a word that would be high on my list and possibly at the top of the list would be the word more, M-O-R-E. No matter where we look, it makes no difference. There is always more no matter what topic we consider, it makes no difference. There is always more. Obviously, there are more people, lots more people. There are more cars traveling more miles over more roads, and I might add, more slowly, and more airplanes carrying more passengers on more flights. There are more televisions broadcasting more programs over more stations. Do you remember there used to be three TV channels? If you lived in Austin, there was one. But that's LBJ's thing. We won't get into that. There are more computers, more books, and more magazines, all processing and distributing more information, lots more information. There are more businesses offering more services and making more products. There are more buildings, more restaurants, more medications, more telephones, and more money. There are more activities and commitments, more choices and decisions, more change and stress, more technology and complexity. In short, there's more of everything. In 1800, there were one billion people. By 1930, there were 2 billion. 1960, we hit 3 billion, but just 15 years later, we hit 4 billion. 12 years later, we hit 5 billion, and 11 years later, we hit 6 billion. There's more. Each year, there are 62,000 new book titles. There are 1,005 typeface fonts available at one store. In 1978, the average grocery store had 11,000 products. Now it has 30,000. There are 550 different kinds of coffee, which we have at our house. (laughs) 250 different kinds of toothpaste and 175 different kinds of salad dressings. There are 2,500 types of light bulbs In one store alone. It's called more. And when you have more, you have... And the thing about more is it's growing exponentially. And see, when there's more, there are more choices, there are more options, there are more things. And see, we get caught up into this idea that that things will make us happy. Now, we know that's not true, but we keep getting sucked into it. Things don't bring happiness. Relationships bring happiness but in an attempt to get happy and to improve our lives, we go after things and we get overextended and we get overwhelmed and we get, we get shot, we get over, we're just exhausted. Wrote a couple other things that night at the laptop because there's some hope. Oh, and by the way, I missed one of them. There's there's a pace of life, there's the progress of life and there are priorities in life and let me put a personal note in here. What, what I realized last year when I looked at my life and when I, I looked at uh, why I was so overwhelmed and why I was, um, uh, why I was spent, what, what I realized was that I had gotten away from biblical priorities. And and see, it's easy to do when there are so many choices. Uh, There are a lot of things out there available for us that that, uh, take our time, that take our attention. And uh, if you have small kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because if your kids play on a baseball team, they just don't play on a baseball team. When I was a kid, we played little league, we played one game a week. We had practice Tuesday night. Now your kid plays little league, or whatever they call it. Uh, they 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 have a game, maybe have two games, and then the nights they're not playing games, they got practice. And you got three kids, and it's not unusual to see families where a kid doesn't play on one baseball team; he plays on two baseball teams. And families don't even have time to eat together. They don't have there, there's no time because see well every, that's how everyone else is lived. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that's how you've got to. That doesn't mean that's the way I'm supposed to live. I I wrote this one night. We are out of the emotional and spiritual cash that it takes to live life well. God has provided for each of us an unlimited credit line of spiritual, emotional, and relational cash. C-A-S-H. I hate to be so crass here, but I hope you understand the metaphor. Because we're talking about being overdrawn. He's provided this in his word, and it's available to us at any time. The Bible is not unlike an ATM that is accessible 24-7 for us to draw on when we need it. But most Christians don't realize they've been given this line of credit. And for those that do, many of them have lost their password. (laughs) Honey, have you seen my Bible? That's your ATM. That's your password. That's your guide on how to live life. That's your owner's manual. Bob Smith at Peninsula Bible Church years ago used to say this all the time. When all else fails, read the directions. He has told us here how to live. He's the giver of life. He's the creator of life. And he has given us principles in here in how to live life. And we've forgotten the password. No wonder we're so overloaded. We are living our lives, we are living our lives out of the change in our pockets instead of drawing upon the riches that God has made available in His Word for our daily living. For these reasons, we are overwhelmed. And most people have absolutely no idea what to do about it. Therefore, the purpose of this study is simply to go back into the Scriptures and look at some central truths that God laid down for how he wants us to live. That's it. Um, There are a bunch of principles. I want to give you five just to jot down. I've got more, but I'm not sure how far we're going to get in the next five weeks. But let me throw five out to you. Tonight we're going to deal with just one. When we're overloaded and when we're overwhelmed and when we're exhausted and stressed out and all those terms that we use because we're depleted, here's the first central truth. Number one, you need a sovereign, a sovereign, S-O-V-E-R, I, wait a minute, R-E-I-G-N, thank you. Sovereign is a king. Campus Crusade has their little, you've seen the little booklet, Four Spiritual Laws, and they have a little diagram, a little circle that represents your heart. And there's a throne, and uh, the question is, who's on the throne? And before we come to Christ, self sits on the throne. Jesus is not only our Savior, as we're going to see in a minute, but Jesus is our King. Chuck did a series a while back. Uh, Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Jesus, our Savior and King. Jesus, our Savior and Sovereign, you see. The, uh, the battle that we all face after we come to know Christ is that we don't mean to at times, but here's what we do, we get back on the throne. We put self back on the throne. But you see, we desperately need a sovereign who can tell us how to live and who can oversee our lives. Let will give you a second principle. If you're overloaded and you're overdrawn emotionally and spiritually, you need a Sabbath. A Sabbath. Sabbath is an interesting study. It was uh, implemented at creation. And you can track it through the scriptures. And by the time uh, Jesus walked the earth, it had been horribly twisted to be something it was never intended to be. But the Sabbath is a great principle. If there's a term that describes our culture, it's the term 24-7. And we're proud of it. I, I saw a license plate the other day with, with the, uh, you know, the deal from the dealer around it. It said, leadership for it. And then it said, the best never rest. Oh, yeah, they do. The best rested. And so should we. So you need a sovereign. You need a Sabbath. Here's another one. You need a sanctuary, a sanctuary. A sanctuary is, now, now, the Spirit of God lives within us, we know that, but a sanctuary is a place. A, a, a sanctuary is a place where there is quiet. A sanctuary is a place where there can be solitude. A sanctuary is a place where we can think and pray and meditate uh, purposefully without interruption. Doesn't that sound good? How do you get that? Say, Steve, you don't know me. I'm just too busy. You know, it doesn't matter how busy you are, you can have a sanctuary. We won't look at that tonight, but it's coming. Number four, you need to be out of your mind. Yeah, some of you are raising hands all over the room here. Well, when I say that, you need to be out of your mind, what does that mean? Well, the natural man does not discern the things of God. He doesn't appraise the things of God. He doesn't understand the things of God because spiritually, spiritual things are spiritually understood. If, if you live and order your life according to the principles of the word of God, people are going to think you're out of your mind. They're going to think... You're crazy. But in Romans it says, but the mindset on the spirit is life and what? Peace. Peace. There is peace from living God's way, putting God's principles in your mind and thinking and pondering and applying those principles. It brings great peace. Here's another one. You need to take a walk. If you're overloaded, if you're overwhelmed, you need to take a walk. Enoch walked with God. You see, that's what the Christian life is. The Christian life life is a walk. Christian life is a journey. We talk about the path. Sometimes I refer to it as the trail. John Bunyan wrote a a tremendous book that's been selling now for over 400 years called Pilgrim's Progress. That's the story, it's an allegory of a guy named Christian who's taken a walk. Uh, Everybody's taken a walk. But we need to learn what it means to walk with God. Because when we do, it makes a difference. In the pressure, it makes a difference. In the stress, be anxious for nothing. Now, I ask you, is that not ludicrous? I mean, honestly. Be anxious for nothing, Philippians says. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You ever just take a walk? And talk to God. And get some of that stuff out. And express it. And uh, decompress your chest and lighten those shoulders because you've given it to Him. You played sports, it's not unusual to turn an ankle or twist an ankle and those coaches with all of their gentleness and empathy. You've twisted it. You've got a bone coming out. The coach will say, walk it off. Walk it off. Sometimes we got to walk things off, but we walk them off with the Lord. Now, tonight, I, I, I want to deal with the first one. Uh, the first one is you need a sovereign. Now, that's not a term that is real familiar to us, because we live in a republic, we live in a democracy. If uh, we, we lived in other nations in history, we would immediately understand what it means to, uh, to have a sovereign, because a sovereign is a king. We're, we're not familiar with kings. But if we lived in England, we'd be familiar with kings. If we lived in, lived in France under King Louis, Shrimp Louis, wh- whoever he was, we would be familiar with kings. Kings have been a major part of governments. Kings uh, are sovereigns. They're sovereigns. Uh, let me give you a couple of verses. First one is 1 Timothy 6.15. In fact, you have your Bible, turn there with me. Because I want you to see this is an aspect of God that is, is designed for our protection. 1 Timothy 6, you have a statement made about Christ. And we'll actually, we'll, we'll pick it up in verse 13 to get the context. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In Psalm 103, verse 19, it says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. We we set up a lot of churches like we set up America uh, in terms of the government. We'll, we'll vote in churches. Everybody gets together and we have a big vote. we got primaries and we got machines in the narthex. It's a wonderful thing. And you got church splits. It's, it's, if you've been there, you don't want to go back. Uh, y- you know the interesting thing about the kingdom of God and about the church? It's a benevolent dictatorship. Jesus is head of the church. Uh, you don't run a church on majority rule. Uh, You just don't do it. You run a church according to the word of God and what pleases the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how the church is to operate. Uh, Jesus Christ is the king. Uh, He is our sovereign. He is to be on the throne of every area of our life. A number of years ago, and I'm hoping I can find this, and I'm hoping it's here, and there it is. Charles Spurgeon wrote these words. There is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. There is nothing for which the children of God ought more earnestly to contend than the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands. On the other hand, there is no no doctrine more hated by worldlings As the great, stupendous, but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the most infinite Jehovah, men will allow God to be everywhere except upon his throne. When God ascends his throne, his creatures gnash their teeth. When we proclaim and enthrone God and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter, then it is That, that makes men turn a deaf ear to us, for God on his throne is not the God they love. They love him anywhere better than they do when he sits with his scepter in his hand and his crown upon his head. But it is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon his throne whom we trust. And may I say this, it is God upon his throne that will enable you to rest. If God's not on his throne, how in the world can you ever get a good night's sleep? If God is not on his throne, and if he is not absolutely sovereign, you'd be crazy to sleep. You'd be crazy not to worry. You would be crazy not to be anxious. But he's the king of kings, and he's the lord of lords. And he is sovereign. R. C. Sproul has said that in God's universe there is not one maverick molecule. That's a biblical statement. Ephesians 1.11 says, He upholds all things by the word of his power. He holds it together. That's why there's certainty in our lives of, of certain things, of the seasons that the sun will come up tomorrow, that it's going to go down, that all of these things he upholds by the word of his power. Now, here's the thing about a sovereign, and here's the thing about a king. Being under their authority all has to do with their character. You get a bad king, you're going to have a bad life. You get a selfish king, you're going to have a hard time. Before we actually deal with the sovereignty of God, and there are three aspects to his sovereignty that I want to point out tonight. Um, We need to see something about the character of God. Um, God is good. Period. He's good. Psalm 119 says God is good and he does good. His nature is good. There are different aspects to the character of God. When, uh, when I was in my 20s, I read a book by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. I, I think I read that book 18 times. For a while, I tried to read it once a year. That book is a book about the attributes of God, what God is like. Years before that, J.B. Phillips wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. And for most of us, that's true. Uh, We we have these uh, caricatures of God that he's this way or he's that way. Um, He is the way that he is revealed in the scriptures some of the aspects of God's character. Uh, He is holy. The primary attribute of God is not his love. God is love, but it's not his primary attribute. The primary attribute of God is his holiness. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and mighty lifted up and the train. His robe filled the temple. And there were these unique beings that were there with six wings. Two, they covered their eyes. Two, they covered their uh, feet. With two, they flew. And they called out to one another, tolerant, tolerant, tolerant is the Lord God Almighty. That's not what they said. Loving, loving, loving is the Lord God Almighty. They said, what? Holy, holy, holy. The holiness of God is his central uh, attribute and character. Holiness means purity. God is pure. Therefore, God is just. Therefore, God is loving. Uh, Therefore, God is true. Uh, God is immutable, which means he doesn't change. See, because of the character of God, because of who he is, because of his goodness, because of his character, because he can be trusted, he needs to be on the throne. Now, do we always understand his ways? No. We'll get to that in just a second. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, uh, to me, it's a great protection in our we spent a fair amount of time in California over the last couple of months. We had a niece get married and we had a family reunion and we, we had some good time out there. We, uh, my, my daughter Rachel is working up at a Christian camp uh, up in Sequoia National Forest. And if uh, you've watched the news at all, you know a few weeks ago they had forest fires up there. And they were particularly concerned because the giant redwoods are in Sequoia National Park. Now there are redwoods in different places along the coast of California, but the giant redwoods. The biggest trees, the biggest living things in all of the world are on that west slope of the Sierras as it goes down to the San Joaquin Valley, about eight 9,000 feet up. The conditions are perfect for these giant sequoia trees. They're magnificent. Uh, over 300. 300- when the fire was threatening, there were a 1,000 people from the San Joaquin Valley that got in their cars and drove up there just to try to protect those trees, and they did because they're just treasures. They're unbelievable. The, the root system of a giant sequoia, their roots only go down three feet into the ground. That's it. They don't have a tap root, but it's very extensive and it's very wide. Uh, they live to be, uh, there are trees in Sequoia National Park that are 3,200 years old. Amazing, huge, old, majestic trees. Um, Some have toppled and they have done a a cross-section and a cross-cut and they have this museum up there and you can see and they'll tell you about the trees. And it's interesting because you've seen tree rings. What's interesting is as you look at this giant sequoia, you see the marks of the fires that the tree has been through through the years. And it's not Unusual for a tree that's 1,500, 2,000 years old to have been through 100, 115, 120 fires. And you can see the marks of the fires on the rings of that fallen tree. But giant sequoia trees have an unusual ability to withstand forest fires for several reasons. But the primary reason that they're able to withstand these forest fires that will come up right on top of them is that a giant sequoia tree... Has a layer of bark that is two feet thick. Two feet. It's about a foot. That's about two feet. That's just bark to protect the inner core and the wood of the two feet of protection. I want to submit to you that as we go through life, we need two feet of bark. to keep us from wrong thinking and to keep us from, from uh, deceit and to keep us from being sucked into the world system. Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by the scriptures. I believe that, that studying the character of God and the sovereignty of God is the two feet of bark that protects us from what wants to bring us down. If you don't have a grasp on who God is, if your God is small, if you're if you're working with about 3 inches of bark, you're in trouble. And let's be honest folks, a lot of evangelical churches in an attempt to get people in and an attempt to grow have stopped teaching the word of God and they're marketing instead of teaching. You can't live on marketing when your wife gets cancer. You can't live on foolish tripe when you get laid off. You can't live on uh, warmed over motivational speeches when your kid gets on drugs. You need the truth that there's a sovereign God who knows everything about you and has all power and can change your life and oversees your life. That's how you live life. So that's why we're talking about this. You still with me? You ready for the two feet of bark? When we talk about sovereignty, the sovereignty of God, there are at least three, um, there are three aspects to, to the idea that, that, that God is sovereign. To, to the fact that He is king, that He is... Um, That he is Lord of Lords. The first one is this. When we talk about sovereignty, we're talking about ownership. Ownership. In Job 41, verse 1, God says to Job, Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. He owns it all. Remember the lie, one of the lies? You can have it all? No, you can't. But you can know the one who has it all. You can be in relation, he can be your father. Psalm 50 beginning with verse 10 says every beast God says every beast of the forest is mine the cattle on a thousand hills I know all the birds of the air and all that moves in the field is mine if I were hungry I would not tell you for the world and all that is in it is mine what do you own whatever you own God owns If you know Christ, He owns you. Uh, You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. He owns you. He owns your possessions. He owns your house. He owns your car. He owns your RV. He owns your stock portfolio that used to exist. He owns your children. He owns your grandchildren. He owns the grandchildren that have yet to be born in your family because He's the Sovereign. He knows their names and the date of their birth and He's already determined the moment of their conception. He owns your health. He owns everything that there is. Secondly, see now that's what you call a sovereign. That's what you call a king. Here's the second thing. It involves authority. authority. In our culture, um, as we mentioned earlier, the authority of God uh, has been ignored. It didn't used to be, but it is now. Even though as a nation we were built on the authority of the word of God. Uh, David Wells, uh, I've been reading this guy this summer. He's a professor up at Gordon Conwell. Tremendous theologian and a tremendous thinker. He has a chapter in his book, God in the Wasteland. He has another book called No Place for Truth. It's a book about the evangelical church how uh, so many churches are caving on the truth of the Bible because we feel that uh, the Bible is too strong and it's too direct. That's a horrible mistake to make. Um, people can't be set free by any other means except by the truth. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you Uh, He has a chapter in this book called The Weightlessness of God. And when he describes this, what what he means is is that the prominence of God in our culture has been lost. God is ignored. And it didn't used to be that way, but it is that way now. God has been demoted. Uh, uh, He goes on and talks about the the fact that, that people deal with issues in their lives in a way that they have never dealt with them before. Specifically, he's talking about fear, and he's talking about anxiety. That's all related to how big your God is. He writes this, Fear is always specific. We fear falling bombs, burglars, muggers, unemployment. Anxiety is always nonspecific. Indeed, its lack of specificity is a large part of what makes it so unsettling. He goes on and talks about fear and anxiety, and and think for a minute, just just ponder this for a minute. How much money do you think was spent in the United States of America today by people in an attempt to get rid of fear and deal with anxiety? How many hours were spent in counseling rooms trying to get a grip on fear and, and, and get anxiety under control? But Wells goes on and he says, there's something that's happening in our culture is that not only are people experiencing fear, and not only are they experiencing anxiety, but he goes on and says that people are having a particular sense of powerlessness and inability to control the circumstances of personal life. They have a feeling that people are just mere pawns in a game played by irresistible and unpredictable forces in society. Kierkegaard called it dread. Dread. It's the sense of being utterly overwhelmed. Well, if you don't have a sovereign, you ought to be overwhelmed and you ought to live in dread because there's no authority. Another way to talk about authority, the authority of God is the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 14 times talks about the fear of the Lord. If you have small children, you want to teach them the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Just take a concordance and trace that through sometimes. You can't have a culture without the fear of the Lord. You can't have a family without the fear of the Lord, at least not one that's going to work. That's authority. Here's the third implication of sovereignty is control. Control. Um, God is in absolute control of this universe. Absolute control. Um, John Piper has written these words. He says, how God governs all events in the universe without sinning and without removing responsibility from man and with compassionate outcomes is mysterious indeed to us. But that is what the Bible teaches. God works all things. Remember that. All things after the counsel of his will. That's Ephesians 1.11. These all things include the fall of sparrows. That's Matthew 10. The rolling of dice, that's Proverbs 16. The slaughter of his people, that's Psalm 44. The decisions of kings, that's Proverbs 21. The failing of eyesight, that's Exodus 4. The sickness of children, that's 2 Samuel 12. The loss and gain of money, that's 1 Samuel 2. The suffering of saints, that's 1 Peter 4. The completion of travel plans, James 4. The persecution of Christians, that's Hebrews 12. The repentance of souls, that's 2 Timothy 2. The gift of faith, that's Philippians one twenty nine; The pursuit of holiness, that's Philippians 3.12. The growth of believers in the Christian life, that's Hebrews 6.3. The giving of life and taking in death, that's 1 Samuel 2.6. And the crucifixion of his son, which was Acts 4.27. God governs all things. Now, you know, we have a problem with that sometimes because that presents a dilemma because sometimes evil happens and we we see bad things happening and we say, wait a minute. God's the king, God's sovereign, God governs all things. Well then, why does evil happen and why does evil occur? I'll give you an interesting verse. Proverbs 16.3 says, The Lord has made everything for His own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Now, I can't explain that and when you deal with the problem of evil and you read different books, you know what? The Bible doesn't explain it. But I'll tell you what the Bible does say. The Bible does say that God has revealed certain things and other things He has kept secret. Deuteronomy 29.29 29 says the secret things belong to God. But the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever that we may observe all the words of the law. Somehow, God is not the author of sin. He's not the author of evil. But God is able to use evil. And you know what's interesting? The most spiritually mature believers understand this. Chuck's been doing a masterful job going through Job. When when the calamity hit Job, and in a matter of minutes, he lost everything. Report after report. Newsflash, newsflash, newsflash. Coming in like crazy. And in a matter of minutes, he had lost everything Job put himself in sackcloth and ashes, and he said, The Lord gives, and Satan takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's not what he said. He said, The Lord gives, and what? The Lord takes away. But hadn't Satan come and asked permission to afflict Job? Yes. See, whatever your affliction, ultimately it is God who sends it. And Job understood that. That's why he later said, Shall we not accept prosperity as well as adversity from the Lord? The del- the- God is using... And see, this is a secret thing to us and we can't give an explanation because it hasn't been revealed to us. But I like what B.B. Warfield said. The devil thinks he is free, but he has the bit in his mouth and God holds the reins. That's how it works. When we understand, when we begin to get a grip on the fact that God is in control, it brings tremendous comfort to our lives. See, his ways are not our ways. So when a 16-year-old girl dies because a drunk driver hits her, how do you explain that? I don't know, but if you take the position as some theologians do that that God would like to stop evil, but he just doesn't quite have the power, you've got a bigger problem. I mean, you've got a huge problem there. Matthew Henry, the great uh, Puritan Bible commentator, was once robbed on his way home. And when he got home, he penned these words in his diary. He said, let me be thankful. First, because I was never robbed before. Second, because although they took my wallet, they did not take my life. Third, because although they took my all, it wasn't much. And fourth, it was I who was robbed not I who robbed. There's a mature man. There's a man who has learned to give thanks in all things because he has a sovereign God who's in absolute control. I've never taught this stuff before. You're the guinea pigs. So I got more stuff than I can possibly teach tonight. So we're going to go to about 10. No, we're not. We better wrap it up. But if, if, if I could take it's five more minutes, and when I say that, I mean 15. <laughs> but roughly about five, because we need to bring this to a close and we've got kids that are burning down the rooms in the other room. <laughs> Next week, I want us to look at a, at a man in the book of Daniel who I think is a central figure in that book. You're thinking Daniel. No. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. No. I want us to look at Nebuchadnezzar. And as we end tonight, I'd like us to just turn over to Daniel 4. Because here was a man who was a king. Here was a man who was a sovereign. Here was a man who had authority. Here was a man who had uh, control. Here was a man that had uh, that had ownership. Here is a man who was used to having his commands obeyed. Uh, but Nebuchadnezzar had been conquered. Not conquered by another nation or not conquered by another army, but he had been conquered by the king of kings and the lord of lords. There is a cause and effect in, in Daniel... Uh, Chapter 4. Next week we'll look at the cause. Tonight I want to look at the effect as we close. Uh, In his pride and in his uh, uh, self aggrandizement, he refused to give glory to God. And he had been warned by Daniel the prophet, there had been a dream that Daniel had interpreted, but he refused to acknowledge God. And sovereignty was removed from him and for seven years he grazed in a field with the mind of an animal. And then you get to verse 34 of Daniel 4 and it says this, But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him. Now catch this, who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can word off his hand or say to him, What hast thou done? He makes three comments here that... I want us to leave with in terms of principles for our lives as we walk out of here and get up in the morning and go to work. Number one is this. God is sovereign over your life because you are created and He isn't. One more time. God is sovereign over your life because you are created and He isn't. If you see the phrase in verse 34... I honored Him who lives forever. Something that if you have young children, one of the great joys is when they are going to ask you, Daddy, where did God come from? And you're going to be putting in a call to Chuck. And you're going to run down and sign up for a class at the seminary. And don't waste your time. You just need to tell them. Well, God has always been. Yeah, but, but Daddy, where did he come from? I don't know of anything that stretches the mind more than that. Um, you read some of the early creeds of the church. Steve Green sings a song based on one of those called We Believe. We believe in Jesus. The Father's only Son. Existing Uncreated. Before time had begun. God has always been. Are you 31? 32 years ago, you didn't exist. But he did. Are you 78? 79 years ago, you didn't exist. But he did. He has always existed. And you haven't. See, that's someone worth listening to. You want a mentor? Every once in a while I get guys, they write me these emails. Hey Steve, I'm looking for an old guy to mentor me. Do you have any time? (laughs) I didn't used to get those, but I get them now. Let God mentor you. He has always been. Here's a second one. God is sovereign over your life because he governs every detail of your life. And you don't. One more time. God is sovereign over your life because he governs every detail of your life. And you don't. We've said this before. He governs health and loss of health. He governs pregnancies and miscarriages. So you're not able to conceive. He knows that. You find that all the time in the scriptures. But you also find all the time in the scriptures women who couldn't conceive that God at a particular time worked in their life so that they did. Or they couldn't. And you've seen this happen. But God will bring a child in through adoption through another way. And see, God's sovereign. He governs pregnancies, he governs miscarriages, he governs career promotions and career interruptions. Have you been laid off? God laid you off. Because he's got a new chapter for you. This is a period of intense trust in his provision, and he'll show it to you. And once again, shall we accept prosperity from God and not adversity? Here's number three. God is sovereign over your life because he is in control and you're not. One of my all-time favorite Christian writers is Thomas Watson. The guys in the Bible study know it because I'm always quoting out of this stuff. Thomas Watson was a pastor in England in the 1600s. In 1662, this godly man, godly preacher, along with 2,000 other Bible-believing preachers. See, the Church of England was the only church there was. But in 1662, they had something called the Great Ejection. They took all of the what they called the nonconformists. They took all of the Bible-believing, Bible-teaching preachers, and with one fell swoop, they put them out of the churches. What that meant was they lost their homes, they lost their income, and they could never preach again. And they didn't have any other options. They were put in jail by the thousands. That happened to Thomas Watson in 1662. He lost everything. But in 1663, he came out with a book called All Things for Good. And he wrote this to encourage his fellow ministers, who too had lost everything. The first chapter in the book is called The Best Things Work for Good to the Godly. The second chapter is entitled The Worst Things Work for Good to the Godly. The thing about Thomas Watson is this. Tremendous overload in his life. But he overcame overload by holding on to the sovereignty of God. The title comes, as you know, from Romans 8, 28. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Is rape good? Absolutely not. Bankruptcy good? No. Kid on drugs good? No. Spouse who betrays you good? No. Doesn't say it's good. But God causes all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose he's able to bring good out of the very worst thing that has ever happened in your life because he's sovereign I don't know about you but I think I'm gonna sleep better tonight. Father, we bow before You. We bow before Your throne. And tonight, we put You on the throne. Now, You're there. But emotionally and volitionally in our hearts, we put You on the throne of our hearts. Lord, in every life, there are things going on that we don't understand. Lord, there are things that baffle us. And I remember as a kid, going with my dad to that jewelry store and his watch wouldn't work. And I remember watching that that old man. And, and, And it was just amazing because he had this little tiny instrument and he took the face off that watch and there were all these gears, different sizes. And they were all going in the same direction except two or three, which were going in the exact opposite direction. And that made no sense to me. And that's the way our lives are sometimes. There are gears in our lives that seemingly are going absolutely the wrong way. But your purpose is always on time. And your schedule for us is never delayed. And your grace is never early and it's never late. We praise you and honor you for your sovereignty. May we rest in it. May we bathe in it. May we meditate on it this week. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, folks. Appreciate you. We'll see you next week.